We continue this morning in our study of 2 Thessalonians. The letter is actually a pretty brief letter, and it's actually what you would expect, um, seeing how soon Paul wrote it after his first letter. It really demonstrates the, the pastoral heart God had, I mean, Paul had for these people um, and what they were going through as relatively new believers, uh, suffering persecution really from the start, and, and also running into other problems as well. As you peruse the letter, you find that much of it talks about uh, the time of Christ's return and the events that have to do with that. And we learn the reason for that actually in chapter 2, where we are now, and that's because there had been quite a bit of disturbance and anxiety created by false teaching that had wormed its way into the community that declared that the day of the Lord had already come, that day when God would pour out judgment on his enemies and would vindicate his people. And Paul wants them to know, and he actually reminds them of what he's already taught them, that that day of the Lord cannot come unless a couple things happen first. The, the first, we looked at this last week, is that there has to be the, the great apostasy, the great rebellion. When those that profess to know Christ uh, in large-scale measure, turn away from him. And then on the heels of that comes really the embodiment of that kind of rebellion, one called the man of lawlessness, a son of destruction, um, what many of us would refer to as the Antichrist, who will be empowered by Satan, um, oppose God, exalt himself to the point of sitting in the temple of God and proclaiming himself to be God. And Paul says, look, before that that devastating day of the Lord comes, and you read about it in the book of Revelation, for that day comes, these things have to happen first. So we, we started on looking at this man of lawlessness last week. There wasn't really sufficient time to go through all of what's re- revealed here, so we cut it off at verse 5, and we're going to pick up again in verse 6 and learn more about this individual and his career and look at the rise and fall of the lawless one. Beginning in verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 2, follow with me as I read. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There are four couplets of ideas that we see in these brief verses, and we're going to study this passage this way. First, we see in verses 6 and 7, current lawlessness and its restraint. Current lawlessness and its restraint. In verse 8, the revelation and destruction of the lawless one. In verse 10, 9 and 10, satanic power 
and wicked deception. And then finally, in verses 11 and 12, God sent delusion and condemnation. First, consider with me what may be the most difficult verses, uh, not in, only in this chapter, but in First and Second Thessalonians, and maybe uh, right up there among the most difficult in the New Testament. But I think there's much here for us to gain that will be helpful to us. The current lawlessness and its restraint. Verse 6, you know and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Whenever the Bible refers to mystery, it refers to something that was hidden or is hidden, that has been or will be revealed. So it's, it points us to the revelation of God as something you wouldn't know if He didn't uh, lift the cover and let us know. The mystery of lawlessness um, is that disobedience to God, rebellion against the law of God, and we note that it's already at work. It's already operational. It's already, where do we get energy from? It's already energizing. It's the same word that's going to be used in verse 9 to refer to Satan's energizing and empowering the man of lawlessness. So, whenever professing believers or churches fall away, apostatize, or rebel, or individuals in cultures defy God's law, we see this lawlessness at work. Christians are called in the current day to stand firm against the attacks of satanic deception and departure from the truth, as well as to stand against the opposition and rebellion against God. We see rebellion against God's righteous law at every level of our society. People worshiping the creature instead of the creator, we commonly call that idolatry. Throughout the centuries, Totalitarian governments have elevated the state above God and demanded complete submission and worship. The Marxist regimes have declared God to be a fable and the state to be the only true God. Others try to replace the Word of God with human science, which by definition is just what we observe and we draw conclusions. It's not meant to be dogma, and yet we tend to make it that, at least for as long as it lasts till somebody observes something different. But we consider ourselves more sophisticated than the ancients who worship images of their idols, although that's still rife in many places in the world. But we do share the evolutionary worldview of the ancient pagan world. It was revived with the influence of Charles Darwin in 1859, and and since then, Uh, There has grown a majority of educational and scientific institutions that have declared that the universe is somehow self-creating and that God as creator has no place in his own creation, this lawlessness. Despite the fact that every language and design origin that we can actually observe coming into being comes from an intelligent mind, they declare that a far more complex universe whether we look through a telescope or a microscope, comes just randomly. Random forces. They still can't explain where life comes from. Even the simplest self-replicating cell is amazingly complex. Darwin didn't know that at the time. 
It's impossible to come into being randomly because all the parts have to be functional from the very start. And the missing links are well-named because they are still missing. The missing links between different kinds of living beings. Nonetheless, evolution is accepted and elevated and fiercely defended as foundational dogma and declared to be proof that God does not exist and more importantly, that He has no say in how we conduct our lives. At the root of this fairy tale is lawlessness. School history books have removed much of Christianity's positive contribution to Western civilization and instead selectively portray biblical faith as a major source of hatred and oppression. Doing so is important because it helps legitimize and affirm and celebrate sexual perversion as a positive good for advancing human identity and, and dignity and fulfillment. And any limitation of this self-expression is cast as inherently evil and abusive. Moral absolutes are taboo. To preserve complete sexual freedom, human life itself is put on the altar. It's no longer sacred. Killing the innocent is called women's health and personal freedom from oppression. In our own pursuit of our own human freedom, we actually sanction choosing to kill other human beings. Our lawlessness, however, is found not merely in societal trends. It actually lives in every community and family and human heart. Most murders are domestic murders. Most abuse is against those that we know. Wars and fightings come not so much from the outside as from our own selfish, pleasure-seeking lusts that rage in our own hearts. Paul talks about this in Ephesians. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, and what once you once walked, you lived your daily life this way, following the course, the scheme of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, the spirit that is now at work, that is now energizing the sons of disobedience. We disobey by nature, like father, like son. When we do wrong, we're just expressing who we are, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. In other words, we were sons of destruction, sons and daughters whose very nature demanded God's wrath like the rest of mankind. However bad lawlessness may be in our own world and in our own lives, our text declares that right now it is actually restrained. From time to time, we get a glimpse of how lawless how diabolical people and nations can behave. In Paul's day, there would come the gladiatorial games where human beings are fed to wild beasts and it's considered entertainment. The periods of genocide 
Madame Guillotine of the French Revolution, the world wars, the, the Nazi death camps, the Stalin purges, the Pol Pot killing fields, the Taliban beheadings. These are only a few. We tend to think that only certain kinds of people can behave in such barbaric ways. But with closer and more honest inspection of history and of our own hearts, we find evil in our own communities, in our own selves, despite many efforts to curb corruption and cruelty. But I want you to think for a moment of a world where all the restraints fall away. Think how many times God has pulled you back from following a disastrous path. Think how many times God has suddenly turned um, what was going in a, in a horrible, dark direction and has turned it around with a reformation or with a world war or with a revival. Think of a world where all the restraints fall away and humanity can finally express its full lawlessness, supercharged, with satanic power, codified into global tyranny, and, and centered in one dynamic leader before whom the whole world bows. Well, that is what is coming. This restraint is not merely by an impersonal power, but you'll note that our text says, refers to it as a person, he. You know what is restraining him now. He who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So you have what is restraining this lawless one, and then you have he who now restrains will be taken out of the way. Well, nearly all the Bible commentators, at least the ones that I read, admit that although the Thessalonians know who the restrainer is, because that's the way Paul says it, you know. And Paul obviously knows because he taught it to them. We don't know for sure. And just about everybody on every explanation they give, they start with that statement. Okay, here goes. We're not sure exactly what Paul is talking about. They obviously knew, uh, but we don't. One of the most common answers is that Paul is referring to Roman law, and when he talks about a he, talking about Caesar who enforced it. By extension, then, Paul would be talking about human government ordained by God to reward good and punish evil. And part of civil government's intended purpose is to restrain evil. Those that think civil government is what Paul calls the restrainer look for a coming time of unparalleled anarchy. Others argue that since God alone has the power to restrain someone as powerful as Satan, so in some way the text has to refer to him. And in particular, they point to the role of the Holy Spirit in his work on society and, and in and through the church. If you think about it, if truly born-again believers are raptured, 1 Thessalonians 4, prior to the tribulation period, and I know that there's debate about that, but the removal of the restraining influence of their lives empowered by the Spirit would have huge impact on society. So let me just caution, you know, with the different explanations, don't, don't be dismissive of people trying to figure out how this works with what's been revealed. 
Sometimes we just label people, and then if they get a certain label, then we just ignore what, what they say. But, but it's possible that this would fit. It's not that the Holy Spirit would no longer be present in the world, but that he would cease his current restraining work in the world through the church, and really even in society. You remember that in the upper room discourse, Jesus talked about the comforter who would come, the spirit of truth who would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and would indwell believers. Well, on the day of Pentecost, Christ's prediction was fulfilled, but the Spirit's coming at Pentecost did not mean that the Holy Spirit was not present at all in the world prior to that. That's not possible. He's God, and He was actually present at creation of the world. And the Old Testament well demonstrates the work of the Spirit. So, so realize that there are, there are nuances to this, um, but whether it's through the person of the Holy Spirit working in the church or through the instrumentality of the civil government or some other means or person, God is the ultimate source of whatever restraint keeps lawlessness at bay in our present world. He's Lord of history, and this lawless one cannot come uh, to power, is not going to be revealed until it's his time. God controls time. God controls the seasons. God controls what holds things back. And it's God who will withdraw that restraint when the time for the lawless one arrives. Now, some things to think about given this present lawlessness and its restraint. I want you to think about how does knowing that God restrains how far evil can go in our world help you cope with the evils that you see? No, it's, it's not just thinking, oh, it's going to get way worse. I'm so happy. Okay? It, it's that God has got a lid on this, that, that God is holding this back, that the evil is not free to do uh, whatever it wants to do. Satan is on a leash, and God's got the other end of the leash. And in fact, God will eventually destroy Satan himself. So... So as we see wickedness and evil in our world, the lawlessness, of all the people on the planet, we ought not be the ones freaking out about it. I mean, it can be upsetting, it can be angering, whatever, but let's remember that our God is the Ancient of Days, and He still has a handle on this and has control of it, and nothing is going to happen beyond what He allows. And also, there's another dimension of this. How does knowing God restrains how far evil can go in our world temper the common tendency to elevate human achievement and goodness beyond what it deserves? We like to think the best about people. It's a good practice. It's a good not just to assume the worst about people, but, but understand that the human heart is a, is a nest of evil that can spawn more wickedness than we can imagine. That's my heart and yours as well as everybody else's. D don't think that human beings are better than they actually are. There's common grace. They reflect the image of God. But, but it's 
God restraining that, that keeps people from being as wicked as they could be. We are corrupted in every part of who we are. That's called total depravity. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we possibly can be. God is restraining. Okay? But it does mean that every part of us is infected by sin, and, and God holds that back. So don't, don't deify human beings. You can appreciate them, be grateful for them, but make sure you look beyond the creature to the creator, to the one who has given us dignity and purpose. The second couplet that we see is in verse 8, the revelation and destruction of the lawless one. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The man of lawlessness, you remember, was introduced to us not just as the man of lawlessness, but also the son of destruction. In other words, the most powerful evil ruler ever has only a brief window to exercise his wickedness. God has already determined his destruction, and he cannot stand up against the power of Jesus Christ. Paul captures his rise and fall in one terse sentence. He's revealed and killed. The king of kings has but to breathe, and his enemies are destroyed as if by a blast furnace. We do not fear the revealing of the lawless one, because the Lord Jesus will bring him and his entire empire of evil to nothing when he returns. Shortly after the man of lawlessness steps onto the stage of human history, Jesus Christ will come and overthrow him. The Lord's appearance, his epiphany, his shining forth will set all things right. It will drive away the darkness. John describes this moment in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns, and on he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Why is that? Because he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. We know that name. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, notice from his mouth, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is no ruler in the past or in the future that is mightier or greater or can overthrow him. In the following verses, John goes on to describe the capture of the beast, this man of sin and the false prophet who had caused those who received the mark of the beast to worship his image. They both are thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. There are first ones there, while the armies that follow them are destroyed with the sword from the Lord's mouth, their carcasses left to be food for the birds. So much for the greatest rebel 
ever in all that he could muster to fight against God. So if the mightiest Satan-empowered leader of all time is so easily destroyed by the breath of the Lord Jesus, how fearful should followers of Jesus be of evil people who wield power today? And if you choose to love evil instead of good, what do you think your chances are of winning your war against a God like this? You really do have to choose this day whom you will serve. If God is with you, you can't lose. If you rebel against him, you can't win. It's as simple as that. Well, in verses 9 and 10, we see this individual has great satanic power and wicked deception. Verse 9 reads, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The reason this lawless leader gains so much power and authority so quickly is that Satan himself is empowering him. He is Satan's fraudulent parody for the real Christ. He energizes him with all power. That's the word we get dynamite from, commonly used for miracles, with all power and lying signs and wonders. These are the three terms that both Old and New Testament use for miracles. The first emphasizes the unusual power or ability to actually do these works. The second points to the message or the doctrine that the miracle is supposed to teach. And the third refers to the amazement that miracles produce in those who witness them. The apostles, when they were preaching the gospel, were given the ability to do miracles in order to prove to people that what they were teaching was actually from God. Well, Satan's going to parody that, just like the magicians in Pharaoh's court copied the signs that Moses did. Satan's going to parody that and, and try to fool people with supernatural power as well. Just because a person can do a miracle doesn't mean that he's good or that what he's teaching is true. So, well, how do you know? And I'm reminded of the, the text in Isaiah 8.20 when Isaiah talks about uh, the wizards that peep and mutter, and they're supposedly talking to the dead, and very likely were working with demons, so had these kind of special powers. He says, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to these, there is no light in them. So, ever the test is of whether a person's telling the truth or not is the written word of God. Whatever miracles, remember there'll be, be preachers that are sent to hell at the end of the age who did miracles and cast out demons, according to Matthew 7. And Jesus said, I never knew you. Okay. Those he knows, they're tested by the word of God. And so Satan's a liar, and he backs these lies with supernatural power, power beyond what human beings can muster. All this is unrighteous deception geared to snare those who are doomed to perish. And here's the reason, 
because they refuse to love the truth and thereby be rescued. This is a sobering reality. A lot of times we think, well, it's up to us. It's like, do I, you know, I don't want the truth. What do I want to believe? It's all, you're like, I'm in charge of this thing. If you refuse the truth, think about it, you are left with only lies. And the problem is not so much the intellect of your mind as the affection of your heart, what you actually love. They refused. There's a willful resistance to actually love the truth. Because if they would love the truth, they would be saved. Ephesians 4.18 talks about why this is so. It talks about the Gentiles that don't know the Lord, and this is where uh, the believers in Ephesus once were themselves. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that's in them. Oh, so it is intellectual. No. Due to their hardness of heart. Do you realize your desires skew your ability to think clearly, rationally, logically? You see this all the time. You get, you, you get somebody ginned up enough, angry enough, passionate enough, and they don't even think straight. Okay? And, and that's exactly the way that we are built. And this is what happens with these people. People imagine themselves wise when they reject God's revealed truth. But such action only makes them fools, easily duped by the deception of Satan. So it's not, you know, it's not just that like, oh, I can decide whether I want to believe God or not. Look, you choose not to believe God. What are you left with? People imagine themselves free when they cast off God's rule. But such action only makes them Satan's slaves, doomed to perish. They're not free at all. And I'll just remind you of a verse that you learned from childhood, no doubt, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes but have eternal life. These that perish are those that didn't love the truth. God gave his son so that if you would believe in him, you would not be among those who perish. So the question is, what sins are you protecting that make you vulnerable to lies? Because this is all happening at a heart level. It happens at a level where other people generally can't see. This is where we have to fight the spiritual war. What sins are you protecting that make you vulnerable to lies? And, and then looking longer term, who will prove a better master for you, Christ Jesus or Satan? And if you think you're master of your fate, you've already believed a lie. I mean, how, how can you believe that and have your eyes open and, and just look at the way life works and how much is out of your control. How can you believe your master of your faith? Which master do you want? Think about the character of Jesus. Think about his self-sacrificing love. Think about the character of Satan. Think about the way he tortures people and destroys them. Now, which master do you want? Because Christ came to deliver you from the dominion of darkness. 
and, and to bring you into his own kingdom. Verses 11 and 12, we see God sent delusion and condemnation. So it's not just Satan's power that's to be feared here. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Because they refused to love the truth, starts with therefore, God sends them this strong delusion, an energizing of error for them to believe the lie. God actually gives people what they want. This is why guarding your heart is so important. God gives them what they want, and he energizes this delusion. Look at all the overwhelming, tragic outcome of refusing to love the truth. Satan's deception works on you, and God causes error to become operational so that you instinctively believe lies. The battle for truth is not just a human contest. It is tied to a cosmic battle between darkness and light. You and I are way out of our league, and to think we're up for it on our own is delusional from the start. And the certain outcome is condemnation, the eternal judgment from God. And the judgment is not so much that we are deceived as why we are deceived. They did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They are, they're well pleased with what is unjust and unrighteous, what is contrary to what they know the law of God to be. They love sinning, so they don't want to even consider the truth. And, and once that heart disposition and mindset are in place, every one of us is easy to fool. Our condemnation is just. It's, it's what we're asking for. It's, it's what we choose instead of deliverance from God, the God of truth and of love. Now, even in this final rebellion, those who are swept into the vortex of satanic delusion and destruction end up there because of what they love. They find pleasure in what is wrong. They reject and rebel against what is right. They, they make themselves pawns in Satan's kingdom and enemies of God to be destroyed. That's why James says to us when he talks about how sin works in our lives, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, like it's God's fault. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured like, like bait for a fish and enticed by his own desire then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is always the way that sin works. It is blinding. It makes us fools. It sets our course toward hell. It has always worked this way from the Garden of Eden all the way to that final rebellion under the Antichrist. And so John says in John 3, this is the judgment. This is the crisis. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So guard your heart. 
pursue the light. Repent from your sin, from your darkness. Don't make an idol of it. Trust in God. Love His truth. He has made only one way for His enemies to be reconciled to Him through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Listen to Paul talk about it in Romans 5. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die, but God shows His love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified, declared righteous by His blood, His sacrifice, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Why not make today the day you end your love affair with sin and turn to Christ to save you in these days when the evil is restrained? And if you reject the truth because you find pleasure in unrighteousness, how can you hope to escape the delusion and condemnation that God promises He will send you? It's a sobering end to this particular passage, but remember that that it's set in the context of the comforting truth of the coming of the Lord We see current lawlessness and its restraint. We see the revelation, destruction of the lawless one, satanic power and wicked deception empowering him, and and God sent delusion and condemnation. But right now, right now we're in that first point. We're in in this time of restraint. Right now we we live when, when we have the good news to tell that God saves rebels, God saves lawless ones. This is... This is our job right now, and and we want to do it without fear. We want to do it with bold confidence. You know, thinking back over different periods of history, think about how dark the Dark Ages were. I mean, to to call something medieval generally, you know, is a slight, is is a criticism. Think how dark it was, how dark it was spiritually. Think how how few people, if you traveled, if you could travel any distance at all, actually knew the gospel and, and how, what, what domination there was of false teaching. And yet God brings the gospel to light for a monk who, who can't get over how powerful his sin is and the condemnation that he feels and sends him into the word of God where he learns that The righteous ones, those declared righteous, shall live by faith. And it sparks as the word of God is made available in the language of people. It sparks what we call the Reformation. It was really an awakening, a revival. And here this man, this German monk, Martin Luther, with a price on his head, translates the scripture, preaches the gospel, has his own flaws, And yet God brings light again. After darkness came light. We don't know if 
God would bring another sweeping movement like that in our own times. But I do know this, that if you're born again and you belong to Jesus, that you're here, here to shed light in the darkness. That you and I are here to hold up the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim him and, and call people to repent and believe before it's too late because it is going to get way worse. We've not seen anything yet. Only slight echoes of what is to come. There's great restraint at work, and we've got a job to do. And we don't need to fear the job, and we don't need to fear the evil. We know who wins, no matter how bad it gets. But right now, we are calling people to be rescued, to turn from loving the darkness and to turn to the light of the Lord Jesus. Well, let's pray. God, you know our hearts. You know where every individual here is. You know those that belong to you and those that don't. You know what lies we have believed and what truth we have believed. And so, Lord, I pray that you would disabuse us of the lies. And, Lord, even now as we meditate on this passage and think about our own lives, God, I pray you would show us what needs to be confessed to you and what darkness we need to turn from. Or, Lord, what individuals we need to share the gospel with. You've given us divine connections with them, and we could be sharing that gospel. So, Lord, as we take a moment here, I pray that, of silence, I pray that you would guard and guide our hearts into your truth. Lord, help us deal with before you in honesty with where we are and turn to Jesus. And let's do that silently now. Dear Father, you hear and answer prayer. And we pray that you would answer these prayers to the glory of your Son, the great conqueror, our mighty fortress. For it's in his name we pray.